and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is Rob Petroso, founder of Rally. Rally is the pioneer alternative investing platform for blue chip and digital collectibles including classic cars, Birkin bags, watches, NFTs, etc. Born and raised in Brooklyn, Rob was the first in his family to graduate from college. After college, he launched a boutique consulting firm and began a career in design. Rob was quickly recognized and began designing for Kanye West, John Legend, Young Jeezy and BJ Drama. Excelling as a young designer, Rob regretted missed investment opportunities in fine art and collectibles because he didn't have access to cash. Rally's mission is to provide access to collectibles by offering fractional ownership to the enthusiast class. The platform has also attracted high-profile investors such as Jimmy Kimmel's Wheelhouse, Kevin Durant's 35 Ventures, and Josh Richards' Animal Capital. Join us as we explore Rob's journey from a designer to a fintech entrepreneur, types of collectibles available on Rally and how they are priced, who is the average investor on the Rally platform, Rob's opinion on NFTs versus physical collectibles, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Rob, good afternoon. Oh, what's up, man? Thank you for uh, for coming down to our new office, doing this in person. It feels like a real. This feels like a real interview. I haven't done it in person one in quite some time. I agree. This is a great office, and I love the ticker on the wall. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. For anyone listening, this is uh, we just moved into our new office uh, in Soho on Broadway and Howard Street, and um, we're gonna have our our new museum downstairs. We're on the second floor right now, but it's like eighty percent of the way done. We want it to feel like a mix of. Um, of like CNBC studios and like a startup office. So you have like a ticker with all of our, our assets that are trading or showing across that ticker. There's a bunch of like different collectible memorabilia, a bunch of um, stock related stuff. So at some point soon, we'll do like a real grand opening, have a bunch of people down to hang out and see the space. And I also see a very cool bike in the next room. Yeah. We've got the, the, the Supreme motorcycle here too. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, you know, it's, that's actually belongs to one of our VP of product, Andy, um, who brought it in to kind of have on display, like everybody that works here and everyone that we've brought on, whether they're investors or they're, you know, people that are members of the team or advisors, everybody's a collector one way or the other. So everyone's got their own personal collections. And one of them was that Supreme motorcycle that Andy brought in. Like everybody here has no choice, but to become a collector of something, you know? Awesome. Jumping into the questions, let's start with an overview of your career. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an aging designer now, but back in the day, in like the early 2000s, um, you know, design was very different. And I came from, a, from an art background, from a design background. I went to school for art. I thought that when I got out of school, I'd be working at an agency or, or figure out some way to sort of work design into my career. And what happened was there was just a lot changing. When I got out of school in like the mid-2000s, um, there was a lot going on in the space. The iPhone wasn't out yet, and, and UI and UX design weren't a real thing yet. But there was a lot of like people that were self-taught that were starting to make websites or starting to kind of work in these these industries that were adjacent to technology, where you know tech startup in New York wasn't a scene yet. But what happened was inevitably I wound up working in music and I worked for a bunch of really well-known artists. And it was uh, at that point um, I started working for Kanye West Company, who was who was kind of new. No one knew who he was in 2003, 2004. By 2005, he was this superstar, and uh, he had this label inside Sony. And it was treated like a startup. So I started working there as an art director and a designer. But really, it was like there was a budget and it was kind of do whatever you want as long as, you know, everybody here agrees with it. And it, and it produces either money or eyeballs or it gets the, the message out. 
for individual artists that were on the label, which at that time were like John Legend. And there was a, a group called Sara, which no longer exists. Um, Big Sean started there in 2007, 2008. Um, there were a couple of the singers. It was this whole mix of people that were this eclectic group that all had their own sort of uh, creative eyes and all had all wanted to be a part of the process start to finish. So that was really like the first design career that encapsulated everything from packaging to like T-shirts and merch to websites to, you know, some of the stuff that went along with copywriting. So that was like this crash course in design at a company that doesn't have a ton of direction and it could change really quickly, but with a lot of eyeballs on what you're doing. And that just led to a lot of different relationships, which inevitably turned into a a stint at a bunch of different startups along the way. One in the publishing space called Scroll Motion, which was doing a bunch of like magazines and bringing a bunch of content to life, led to a company called Kimi, which was in the computer vision space, which is here in New York. But really along the way, like for the 10 year span between, you know, 2004 and 2014, so much change in technology, everything became fintech at a certain point. I think that you know, eBay turned into this platform that everybody my age was using to kind of buy and sell sneakers. And then you had PayPal, which is like the payments layer on top of it. And everybody started getting more interested in, in commerce and how that could work. Then Amazon took over the whole world. So it's all e-com and it's all this idea of transacting. But really, it became this fintech layer that was on top of every single business. So we started thinking about Rally in 2014, 2015. And uh, my co-founder, Chris, called me. He's like, I got this idea I want to talk to you about. Um, he was working in tech. And he was like the super smart kid from my high school. And I was a creative kid. So he's like, I think I have this idea. You could probably design it and put it together. We met up to get coffee at, at the Ace Hotel in New York. And he was like, you know, I think fintech is becoming everything. And that was so becoming way more obvious to me as a designer that if you're going to start designing or building something new, a layer of payments on top of it was the only way to get real market penetration because everybody was paying attention to it. So we love collectibles. We had this idea. There was no way to not have it be a fintech company. It was kind of predestined at that point. Your LinkedIn bio says that good design is both a source of frustration and therapy for you. Tell me about this. How did you marry your passion for design with entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, you know what design is this thing where every I try and find like creative spark in everybody that I work with and everybody we brought onto this team, whether they're like, you know, an engineer or work on the data side everybody has their own feel of the way things should look and feel. And that's, it should be like that. I think designers a lot of time get pissed off when like someone that they don't look at as a creative is saying, change this or change that, or I wish it would look like this. Cause they're like, what do you know? You're not a designer, but everybody is a designer. So for me, when I think about it as like this form of therapy, it's really because you could, I could sit down with a pen and paper and start sketching something and three hours pass And I didn't think at all about what I was doing during that three hour window. You don't have to make money while doing it. So that's like, to me, there's so many jobs in this world that that are creative that you could sort of, you know, sales is a creative job. It's something that requires like a real thoughtfulness and a little bit of charm and it requires conversation still. And that's an art, but it's like, I'm not going to be like selling a product for the company I work for in my downtime, but I'm still going to be thinking about design and thinking about an aesthetic. And I'm still going to be like writing notes to myself that I want to have look as pretty as possible I'm still be drawing out new concepts for something that might be a side project or even something for rally that might come out later. So that to me is this this source of kind of inspiration and frustration. And it is therapy. It is something where I don't have to worry about what else is happening. I could sit down and bring it back to his basics, a pencil and one sheet of paper, get an idea out and that could grow into something. It might turn to nothing, but no matter what, I'm getting those ideas out. I think that's like a huge part of what I want to be able to do with every business I'm a part of, whether I was an entrepreneur, working for somebody else, working for myself, we're just kind of passing the time. It's always going to be a part of what I do. And even for everybody else here, I think they think about the same too. Talking about ideas, 
let's talk about rally. Yeah, it's just that's a, the right question. I just started with that. What's rally? So rally for for, for the uninitiated or, or anyone doesn't know, it's a platform for buying and selling equity shares and collectibles. And uh, it kind of works similar to the stock market in that we do IPOs of individual assets. So it might be you know a, a really rare baseball car like a Mickey Mantle working card. Uh, it might be something like uh, dinosaur fossils, which are a huge sort of draw on our platform and something everybody gets really excited about when we do new dinosaurs. Um, it might be something like an NFT or something that's uh, that's intangible, like a domain name. Um, it could be really anything. Anything that that's relevant now will be relevant in the future, has a history of returns, and is something that you know we can securitize. That's something that winds up on rally if it meets our underwriting standards. So we do these IPOs pretty regularly, and then we have a secondary market where those assets, once the IPO is over, there's a small 90-day lockup period where nothing trades, and then it opens for bid-ass trading during standard market hours. So you know you might buy a, uh, a, a baseball card or some sort, of, um, some sort of item in June, and then a bunch of big news happens or there's new auction result in August. By the time it's trading in September, maybe it trades up. Maybe the opposite, where the market turns and it trades down. But you're able to kind of you know, put your shares up for sale with an ask or make uh, a bid for new shares with a bid, similar to the way you do it on a stock market app. So we've been doing that since 2016 was really when we launched, and that was the first time anyone did it kind of fractional investing in alternative assets or in collectibles. And, uh, you know, back then we did it for like $10 a share. There were no minimums. And now still to this day, it's still $10 a share. That's kind of the baseline for most of our assets. And you can buy and sell them anytime during a uh, during any business day. So how do you select these assets and how do you deal with the risk of acquiring as well as, you know, logically storing these assets? Yeah. So that's kind of the, the the nature of Rally. What everybody sees on the front end is this app that kind of looks like a stock trading app, and it's got a bunch of pictures of assets, and it's got price charts and history. But really, the magic about a lot of what we do has been set up by uh, our third co-founder, Max, who um, I've known for a long time. He worked at Barclays. He was doing private placement deals forever. Just really, really smart in terms of the way that finance works. And um, him and Chris sat down and, and thought about how we're going to structure these assets and how we're going to do it in a cost-effective way. And they found this really genius way. I was kind of, I was doing the creative at this point. So I was kind of like sharing from the sidelines that I do not, I'm bad at math. And like, I've never really had my head into sort of that entire world the way they do. But what happened was in 2012, um, I believe it was 2012, might be a little bit earlier, the government and the SEC kind of saw that they had to bridge this wealth gap. And the Jobs Act is this method of allowing non-accredited investors, regular people, to invest in the assets that they kind of deemed a little bit riskier than standard stocks and bonds. So it was made for crowdfunding. That's kind of where it started. So Max, Chris, and I kind of started talking to our lawyers. We found a way to leverage that same regulation and turn any asset into a corporation or an LLC. We chose the LLC path, which is something known as Reg A+, is like the background for it, is the actual structure of how it works. What we do is any asset, any item, any collectible that you see on Rally, it goes through a standard underwriting process, which is matching up the comps, making sure that you know all the paperwork is in order, making sure it has history of returns. It's something that we deem investment-worthy. Once all those check marks are done by us, by our third-party advisors, by the authenticators that we work with, we package it up as a business. So when you have a dinosaur fossil on Rally, it's like Dinosaur LLC. It's its own business. It's got its own cap table. It owns and operates one item, that dinosaur fossil that you're investing in. And then throughout the course of you know a year, two years, four years, however, however long it's on the platform, it kind of has like its own standard updates and its own audits and you know, the money in its bank account can either go up or go down. All that is part of the process. And that's like all the complexity that we've kind of hid behind closed doors. But we do it in a very transparent way because all these are SEC qualified offerings. They're securities. It's not like 
a random, you know, NFT that doesn't have an attachment to anything or doesn't go through the government and is kind of walking the line between a security and a utility. These are securities and they're looked at as such. So if you go to the, the SEC's website, you go to sec.gov, you could search, you know, rally or RSE or any of the assets individually, you'll find the whole offering circular that shows everything we've done, where it's stored, how much that maintenance costs, how much it costs us to buy it or acquire it, how many shares were issued, the price per share, all the risk factors associated with it. So we've been able to really templatize that process and do it in a really cost-effective way because now we're at, you know, 450 assets. We've been doing it for five or six years. So we have a really good sort of relationship with regulators in a way that our process is very much bulletproof at this point on our side, the way that we push things through the SEC and the way that we put things into that documentation. And now it's public for everybody to see. That's fascinating. Let's dive deeper into Rally's business. How does Rally earn revenue and do you have any competitors? Yeah, so when we came in, it was something that, uh, you know, we got the door closed from in terms of investors and like telling people about it hundreds and hundreds of times because it didn't make any sense till it was out. And I think once we had the first demo and people kind of interacted with the app and they saw what the potential was, that's when it sparked this idea that, all right, fractional investing and investing in collectibles could be a very real thing in the near future. So by the time we launched, like we, we launched with cars first. The, the name of the company was Rally Road. And part of that was obviously like the ode to cars because classic cars are the first asset class. But for us, we always looked at it like, you know, that was our version of Wall Street. So Rally Road was like this place where you and a bunch of friends would get together and invest in the things that you really cared about. And it wasn't going to just be ticker symbols. It was going to be things that, you know, you grew up with or things that had nostalgia or things that you believed in that were going to be valuable in the future. And that was like the rally road. That wasn't Wall Street. Once we launched and we started another asset class on, you start getting that attention. People start saying like, all right, I could do rally for X or I could do the same thing, but do it with you know digital assets. And then that happened really quickly. So I think now what you've seen in New York is that there's this, this pretty robust ecosystem of fractional investing companies. And that's everything from you know the publics of the world and the Robin Hoods, all of which have fractional share investing. But also, like they're starting to think about what alternative assets look like, and public started launching alternative assets, and you know the masterworks of the world and a few others who do it a little bit differently than us do it with art or with one vertical. Um, you know, collectible does it with, with uh, sports memorabilia specifically. So we've seen this industry kind of form as we've built it, and as we move forward, I think we've seen a lot of people sort of come behind us. But at the same time, that for us is a net positive because what was happening early on, where nobody got it, nobody really understood what we were doing. Now enough people understand it that they're finding other kind of sub-verticals to work through and build me- really meaningful businesses around us. And that's that, that rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing for us. Talk to me about why an investor should be on Rally or own a Rally collectible. Yeah, I mean, that that to me is, is kind of the way of the world now. It's that the unfair advantage that the, the gatekeepers used to have because they had all the access to information, I think that no longer exists now. So whereas, you know, alternative assets... Any financial advisor or kind of the old guard will have their their thoughts on what percentage alternatives should be. And that could be bonds or real estate, but it could also be collectibles. It could be dinosaur fossils. It could be, you know, vintage comic books or first edition literature. It could be Birkin bags. It could be Rolex watches. All that right now, going back to where we kind of started this conversation, you know, fintech is everything. The pipes of fintech and the pipes of commerce that lead to sort of ownership are everywhere now. But also the value of ownership and the access to information are so much more relevant with a younger demographic and a younger generation and people who really think about their future as near term. And they're thinking about it like, I see these great things, I'm paying attention to it nonstop. 
you know, I've never been able to buy the whole, you know, vintage Rolex Daytona, but a version of it's on rally. And for 20, 30 bucks for any price that I'm comfortable with, I can come in and put that in my portfolio right next to my stocks, right next to my crypto. So for us, it's really about seeing around the turn, around, around the place that we're all going to want to be in 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And as, as a well-rounded portfolio contains more alternatives, the place to get access to all of them right now and just be self-directed at your own pace and your own speed is on rally. So for us, it's like, A, you're, you're armed with so much more information right now. B, access to the, the best of the museum quality stuff is available on a rally. But C, I think everybody, myself included, wants their portfolio, wants the things they invest in to feel like more than just a ticker symbol. You want it to have a heartbeat. You want it to feel like something you actually care about. I want to take that and put it in my group chat and say, I own this. Can You guys can own it now too. I think that's like the big differentiator between what we do and what you know some of the, the older school kind of investment apps do. Everybody gives you, gives you kind of access to the regular stuff and they made it really easy and quick to invest, but they haven't made it as meaningful as I think we have to this point. And how would an investor go about pricing the collectibles that they're investing in? Because this seems like a mystical process from the outside. It is. It, you know what? It's new. So it is a little bit different. That said, I think that that, that access to data and that, that asymmetry that doesn't necessarily exist the way it used to allows us to sort of comp out individual assets the same way a regular standard IPO would be comped out. So, you know, there's always auction results, insurance values, there's private sales and public sales, which data becomes available for us. But also there's, if we're wrong, the crowd will tell us. So, you know, we'll do IPOs that sell out in 30 seconds sometimes. Others, you know, they won't sell out. Every now and then we'll get one out of every, you know, 20 or 30 that don't sell out. And maybe that means that, A, the market didn't have appetite for it, or B, the price was incorrect, or C, you know, it's just something that's a, that's outside the scope. It's a little esoteric. It's outside the scope of the understanding of that individual investor or the cohort that we brought into the app for that. So at that point, you know, there are times we refunded the investment where the IPO doesn't happen. We bring it back in-house and we kind of recalibrate. Maybe that's an asset class or, or a category that needs a little more attention before we bring it to market. But for us, like, we're using as much public and private data as we possibly can. And we're putting that inside the app during every IPO beforehand, during and after. So you can see all the price charts. Once it starts trading on Rally, you can see where it's traded on Rally. We put a timeline inside the app for each asset where you can see everything that's happened with that asset that particular asset and with that category of asset from the moment of inception or creation or when it rolled off the assembly line up to now. So we try and arm you with any of that extra information that you might not have access to. And when it comes to pricing, that's no different. Every price that that asset has printed and every price for comparable assets that match that asset are part of the app and part of the experience as well. You were on the Wharton FinTech podcast about, about two years ago. What has changed since then? And how has your vision for the company evolved? Yeah, I mean, it's, it feels like it was a decade ago. The last two years were kind of a blur. But the, um, you know, that was like right before the pandemic. And that was right before this crazy meteoric rise that I think happened for a lot of platforms like ours, where in terms of total assets and, and market caps and AUM and total users, everything has, has, you know, doubled and tripled since then. But I think a big thing that we've seen change too is that, you know, a regular investor, the everyday investor, someone who's not spending 10 and $20 million dollars, they came to rally looking for something new because it was that moment where everybody for the last, you know, especially right in that, in that March kind of that 2020 window up until now, I think everybody has kind of gravitated towards something new. They've always tried to find something new. They've really accepted sort of finance as being this personal experience. That's really one-on-one you, your phone or you and your computer finding something new and trying to find that alpha and getting in early and seeing around that turn. We've also seen that, 
I think the echo chambers are way stronger now than they've ever been. So I think that when people see something new, they're not really keeping it to themselves. If they see something new, they see it. There's, 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 you know, the possibility of making some money or doing something really unique and different. They're, they're shouting it and they want everybody in big communities to be a part of it. So I think, you know, we don't do anything close to what happened with like GameStop during that, that little pandemic run and even up to now, but what made that work and, and what made that this really ridiculous and, and really important, I think, moment in finance was that a crowd of people who are looked at as regular investors, who the gatekeepers thought would never have a chance in this type of market. They proved that together as a community, they can rally together, no pun intended, to change the dynamic and to really, you know, to win. And I think that's what's changed so dramatically. I think that's what when I think about the things that benefited us as a platform over the last two years knowing that there's power in community and knowing that there's power in a group and that your voice can really echo very far. If you're saying something that's legitimate, it's backed by data and the information available to everybody means that you can find new opportunity. And that's, what's changed so dramatically. And I think that's led to a lot of, a lot of exploratory work on our side to find new asset classes where the community might not be millions of people, but we'll spend money or know everything about it. But, you know, a couple thousand people that care about a specific asset are powerful. And that's something that we want to make sure that we're paying attention to our rally now too. What is your take on the new investors that have come on board? Do you think most of them are passionate collectors or are they speculative investors who are trying to diversify their portfolio with a new asset class? Yeah, I think it's a mix of both. I think that we, when we started Rally, um, that was during this run where like Robinhood was starting to gain massive popularity. Coinbase was new and, and Bitcoin hadn't had its first bull run yet. Like that 2015, 2016 into 2017 hadn't happened yet. But Robinhood and Coinbase are kind of standing out as these really ubiquitous platforms where if you wanted exposure to stocks or crypto, you're going to wind up on both of those platforms. We looked at Rally as being the third. We always looked at alternative assets as being something that everybody would gravitate towards. And it would be the same motivations. There are people that I told get into crypto really early. And I felt like, you know, I had to explain it to them. And I had to explain the, the, every ver- at the tech side of it. But there were others where I was just like, Yo, trust me, just go do this. And they would just do it. And they're like, put a couple of bucks into Bitcoin or whatever in 2015. And it worked out for them. I think that now you've got the same thing with alternative assets. And that's happened. I think the pandemic was a big catalyst for this too, where certain people are going to show up um, and it's going to be binary outcome. It's going to be very much driven by like, this is something brand new. I know a lot about this asset. I know it can make me money. Um, I'm going to put money here and not look at it for a little while. I think a lot of other people, and this is the majority of our investors on Rally, they're driven by passion first and it becomes an investing tool quick. So they see something they recognize or they'll read about an auction result for some pair of like Michael Jordan sneakers, or they'll see some sort of some bit of news about rally. Like, you know, during that run, we also, we made a bunch of world records and assets that exited off platform, a $2 million video game, a million dollar soccer card, all these things that draw attention where people look at it and recognize and go, Oh, I know what that is. Or I had that when I was a kid, I wish I still had the sealed version of that. It brings them to rally to invest in the things they know. And then inevitably they start to diversify really quickly when they get inside. And the cohorts that we've seen form, a lot of them come in for asset A, and then they find themselves investing in asset B and C and D over the course of months, over the course of a year, where even though they came for passion, now they have a really well-diversified portfolio, even within alternative assets, and they put that right next to their crypto. Are there any assets on the platform that, that are the darling of investors where you see people just buy and hold, which is some yeah. that are like more volatile where people are like, hey, this is more speculative. I need to make my own out. I think that, you know, I use Coinbase a lot, even internally, to sort of explain where we are in this cycle right now. Coinbase was this product that it took 
you know, six, seven years for it to really reach that, that critical mass where it became something that was part of everyone's life. And now you look at something that's basically like, you know, 100 million users, the majority of those came during a very specific one and a half year window. So I think for us, we're starting to hit some of these points where alternative assets and collectibles as part of a portfolio and the idea that you don't have to just invest in stocks or in bonds or in like what people look at as the safe stuff to see returns and get a good feeling out of your investment it's becoming way more prevalent, way more obvious. I think that's only going to increase. I think right now we're in a very unique period where everything has pulled back. Everybody's nervous and scared. Stocks are down. Every, you know, gold is up. Everything else is down basically. And, you know, alternative assets, they typically do better than the market and they outpace inflation, but everything is down right now. Everything got killed. I think this is that moment that we preached about when we started this platform where you have a lot of people, a young generation, a whole group of the late millennials and kind of the early generation right after, they've never seen a bear market. This is the first one. And what we've always said when it comes to alternative assets, real estate's the easiest example of this for people to follow, is that the money isn't made during like the wild bull periods. That's like when you can get in, get out, and it's good to establish a position, no question. And this is not investment advice, but I did it with equities and I got killed in 2009 into 2010. I took all my money out at that point, whatever was left, very, very little that was left. And then it was just like watching it run up in my face and having no skin in the game because I was so scared. And that, that to me is what's happening right now is where bottoms are formed, not when people's you know, hair is on fire and they're running around crazy. It's when they get relegated to this depression of like, I'm not going to make my money back anymore. But that's also the moment where people that make those big bets tend to have outsized returns when things do turn around. So for us, preaching that education about what these assets have done, something like that Honus Wagner car that I brought up, which has never been sold for less than it was purchased for. And that's a 110-year history. So for us, it's about education of what these assets have done through periods like this, because I think that's going to meet head on with this idea that alts and collectibles should be a part of every portfolio. And if done correctly, I truly do believe that the future is, is so, so bright for both of those for platforms like ours that have alternative assets and have access to things that aren't standard equities or standard investments and the assets that are associated with them and people knowing that those are really, they're important for a reason. They've been around for hundreds of years in some cases for a reason. They've gone up and to the right during that period when you zoom out for a specific reason. I think those are things going to meet head on from a really young, new, educated investor who's not going to make the mistake that I did, who's not going to say like, that's it. All the money's gone. I have no chance. And then watch a bunch of other people make money on it because they had the nerve to get back in. I think that's what we're going to see happen. And no growth is possible without the right people. So my next question is, is rally hiring? Yeah, always. Listen, this is a, this is a challenging period right now for startups in New York in particular. I think everybody's tightening their belt a little bit, but there's never a time that we see great people and that we don't, we don't want them here. I think everyone, you know, like the product team that, that I've been running for the, for the last, you know, three years or so, Everybody that we hired um, and everyone that I brought in, you know, we didn't use recruiters for any of them. They were people that were users of the platform, knew what we did, cared about it, had ideas. And those conversations started so organically. So like Andy, who I brought up earlier in the conversation, who's like, you know, my savior, I tell him all the time, he's my VP of product, but he's like, he took on all the stuff. He's so much better at the things that I'm not good at. He took on so much of the day to day and making sure that we're putting out great product all the time. But that was a six, seven month conversation I had with him before he worked here. And he was just somebody who was like, you know, working somewhere else, had a bunch of great ideas. I put up a quick little posting on LinkedIn. It wasn't really a job post. And like, you know, he pinged me like we should talk. And then we started having the conversation. He was in California. Um, 
you know, he knew sneakers and he understood like Supreme, like we were talking about, but he also really cared about like accurate NSXs and like Penny Hardaway and all these things from our childhood, from the nineties that are so important to him. And next thing I knew it, you know, he's running all the products because these are the people that we're always looking for. So the roles we look for a lot of times are not the ones that you find in the job post. We're looking for people that really care about what we're doing, have an idea on what this space is going to look like and can contribute to the mission. And that for us is like tying in those aspirations to real equity. If you have an idea of the way that we can make that work, that's someone that we want to have the conversation with. And more often than not, they wind up being, being here in a really meaningful position to help us push that mission forward. Switching over to more macro questions. Do you think NFTs and physical collectibles are distinct asset classes? Or do you think, is there a relationship between the two? You know, I'm not sure yet. I think uh, if you would asked me that a year ago, I would have said, uh, you know, I'd be lying if I wouldn't have thought that NFTs as a true asset class were on their way to mainstream adoption. I think there was some some ancillary things that happened in this space, the FTX scandal, uh, some of the hacks along the way of the bigger exchanges, but the ones especially, you know, overseas, because this was something that crypto in general and NFTs were something that at its peak were very U.S. centric, but at the same time were global. You had a lot of people that were from other countries that were trying to make money on uh, on mints and trying to sort of, you know, make their quick rips and get out. And, and that made it a global conversation way more than some of the other stuff that happens here in the U.S. But I think what's what's impossible to ignore is the fact that, you know, you can spin up an NFT project, whether it was something that was used as a loyalty program like a Starbucks or it's a PFP project like Board Ape or anything else, or it's something that's just the pipes and the back end that connect a physical to a digital. You can do it really quickly and and for ch- relatively cheap compared to what you would have to do to build a full stack of a product like Rally right now. So it's hard for me to think that there's not a place, especially with, within embedded finance. And once I think the SEC has a little more opinion that they can put on paper about what is a utility versus what is a security, I think you'll see more of the real world physical tying to digital with, with, with tokens as the backbone one way or another. I think you see way more businesses like Rally spring up that are leveraging the blockchain the way it was intended to be leveraged and doing that with very, very small, uh, very, very confident, young, small teams without having to build an entire business from scratch. And they don't necessarily need the front end like a rally has. They'll be embedded into a platform that already exists and they'll be able to do things way more efficiently. I think that's what we're going to see in the future. And as you mentioned, everything is fintech. Are there certain segments within fintech that you're bullish on versus segments that you're bearish on? Yeah, I mean, this is, I'm, it's weird because like I'm bullet, I'm still, I'm trying to be like, I don't want to be a permable, but it's hard for me to talk down anything because I love it so much. I think that's the thing about rally and about collecting anything is that no matter what, whether it's up or down on paper in terms of money, in terms of liquidity, in terms of where the value stands or an auction result, having the thing and having the memories that go with that thing a lot of times with the most nostalgic stuff is important. And having you know access to the best stuff, even in a down market, is super important. So for me, when I think about the things that have worked, it's hard for me to say something like you know Mickey Mantle's rookie card or you know dinosaur fossils or some of the stuff like the Declaration of Independence. It's hard for me to look at those and say, nah, they're done. No one's ever going to care about American history anymore. No one's ever going to care about sports anymore. No one's ever going to care about the thing that they learned about dinosaurs in the fifth grade. We're never going to teach about that anymore. You know, these are all conversations that happen nonstop. Even when you think about like dinosaur fossils, the idea of, of evolution versus this God created world are so relevant right now, as relevant now as they were 2000 years ago. So for us, when we think about the way we source assets and when I think about the things that I buy and what I'm bullish on in the future, I think about like the relevance now 
And is it going to be relevant in the future? If you believe something like, you know, dinosaurs, as an example, are going to maintain their relevance in the future, it's going to be part of a curriculum of what gets taught in grade school in the future. It's going to be something that elicits that same response that you see from a five-year-old right now when they go to the American Museum of Natural History. If you think that's still going to exist in the future, it's hard then not to make a case that those only artifacts that they're never going to make again, that are the one of so few, it's hard to argue that those aren't going to be relevant and aren't going to be important in the future. And that's how I think about my investing too, the same way. That was a very roundabout answer. I didn't really give you an actual answer, but I do think that like, if you want a real one, it's hard for me to see Apple at, at 125 and not think that that's a good buy right now, not investment <laughs> advice at all. Our last segment is more about you as a person. And I have a couple of rapid fire questions lined up for you. First one is, are you a designer first and an entrepreneur second or vice versa? I think I'm, I'm always a designer first because it's, uh, you know, I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about the clothes I'm putting on and the conversation I'm going to have. You know, a lot of times when I go into like one-on-one meetings, I have some sort of script that's all designed to me. So like the entrepreneurial journey, it, it, to me, it's always rooted in design. Like for Chris, it's always going to be rooted in, in, in critical thinking because that's what he's great at. For Max, my other co-founder, it's always going to be rooted in finance because that's what he's great at. To me, I feel like I'm great and I'm good enough at design to sort of get my, use that as the, the medium to get my ideas out. So it's hard for me to think that I would ever not put that first. Or at least I, I feel like that's the cool one. So I want that. I want people to think of me as a designer too. So that might be, a, that might be an ego thing. I'm not sure. Are there any risky career moves that you have made? If yes, what was the thought process behind them? Um, yeah, I think along the way, for sure. I think a lot of times I thought I was going to be like a day trader on the side. I think this is part of the problem of like thinking about everything as finance. I think I thought when I was starting to make a little bit of money and this is, this was, this was a huge mistake along the way. I thought I was gonna be able to sort of put my feet in three or four other things. And that was the risk. I thought I had a lot of people do have that capacity. I think I, I met a lot of great entrepreneurs and great founders who were able to balance 20 different things at once. For me, I'm, I'm good with like two or three of them. I think that the risks I was taking early on were taking the money that was earned and trying to like double it and triple it with other side projects. And I think if I would have just focused a little bit more um, along the way on one or two things, it might have had a different type of outcome. It's not a regret necessarily because I think people have to take those risks, but that's the good thing and the bad thing too. You need the, what this generation doesn't have that I'm in retrospect, I'm lucky I have. I wasn't lucky at the time is that I got that rug pulled and you know lost every dollar during a, a window of time where it was pretty clear that like as a 23 year old, whatever, you have no business like doing the trades that I was doing and these weird options plays and straddles and nonsense. That would, those are the risks that you take, but it helped me learn the ins and outs of finance and we built a lot of that into rally. So from a design perspective, it was actually a good thing to know, um, to know how bad it is to sell cover calls. We don't have enough of the underlying stock to cover it. So. Who's your favorite designer or artist conventionally or otherwise? Um, I got a bunch. I think a lot, my mom is a, is, to me is like the be, is a amazing designer. She's, she's an educator now and my whole family works in the public school system, but she's also a chef and she's also a, an illustrator and she's able to sort of do these things that, the attention to detail she has on little stuff like Thanksgiving with my family when they come over the house, my parents' house in Brooklyn, and like the way the table's laid out, the way the coursing is done, the way the food is prepared, all that type of stuff is art to me. And that's done. I've always looked at like food and chefs and what they do, even way before it was, it was in vogue to be a chef. And it was like a thing like the way it is now. My family owned a uh, small restaurant in Brooklyn, um, an Italian restaurant that was like a local place. And I would always be there either like at the bar, like doing homework after school. I'd be a busboy and work there when I was younger. 
and you see the way that that whole process works. And it is like this dance start to finish. And my mom is awesome at sort of making sure that you don't miss a beat along the way. And the way it's all designed start to finish is, is super, super admirable. I wish I had that. If you could go back in time and tell 20-year-old Rob something, what would it be? Man, that's a good question. I don't, you know what it is? One of the things that, and I'm still struggling with this now, I'm a little bit better at it, was to find joy in, in having things, not just getting them. I think that when you're an entrepreneur, especially you're doing something that you, that you believe in, that you think is new, and it's, it's what your whole life is, and it's all you're doing every single day, you have this way of moving the finish line back and not kind of celebrating the wins along the way. And then, and then not even thinking about what you just did, it's on to the next one, on to the next one, on to the next one. I think a lot of the problems that I've had as like a consumer, just as somebody who like, you know, spends too much of his disposable income on clothes and stupid stuff is that once I get it, a lot of times like that thrill is gone. I'm a little bit better at it now, but especially in my twenties, when I was just starting out in this space, it was the thrill of getting things was so much bigger than having it. Once I had it, I wanted the next one and the next one. And as a 20 year old now, like everybody's so inundated with a million different channels being comfortable getting something, having it, and then settling down for a little bit is a really, really important thing that I think a 20-year-old now should have that I definitely didn't have back then. On that note, we'll let you get back to collecting things, Rob. <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Walk in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Gupta.